Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Caroline from the band Bastet on The Hook Rocks with Jay Scott. everyone welcome back it's jay scott it's the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast thanks for tuning in once again hope you're enjoying the beginning of spring although here in chicago it does not feel like spring feels like a a winter that is fighting its existence so we had snow on the ground this morning and uh it was very unsettling but hey we're moving on we're moving forward thanks again for tuning in we are part of the pantheon podcast network Great network of music-related podcasts, as I mentioned at the beginning of every show. Please check out my friends like Vinny Apice and Carmen Apice on the Hanging and Banging podcast with Ron Anesti, Martin Popoff, the Rock Historian, Tom and Zeus on the number one rated KISS podcast, shout out Loudcast, Decibel Geek, Mac on the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. I think I got there. Right? I hope I didn't butcher it. But And also Mistress Carrie out in Boston. Check out some of our previous shows that we've had this year. We had Scott Gorham from Thin Lizzy. Great uh, interview with that. Ty Taber from King's X. We also did our end of quarter album rankings for the first quarter of 2022. So check out that. As well as some new music spotlights with Joyous Wolf, Georgia Thunderbolts, and the Mysterines, as well as many others. And don't forget some music commentary for you as well. We tackled some topics such as the future of streaming, NFTs, and blockchain, and how it's affecting the music industry. 
as well as a deep dive into the tour with Dorothy, Joyous Wolf, and Classes Act, three great new bands that are touring across the country, so check that out. We've got a great guest for you today, a new album, his first since 2020, one of my favorite guitar players of all time. I still remember watching him being interviewed by Adam Curry on Headbangers Ball when I was a kid and going, who is this guy named Joe? And just was absolutely incredible. I'd like to welcome in Joe Satriani. What's happening, man? How are you? Hey, very good. I can't believe you remember that interview with Adam Curry. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I, th- I think it was, well, they had the one during the week. Like, it was the hard 60, and then they had Headbangers Ball. I don't remember if it was Headbangers Ball or, like, that one that was on, like, 3 o'clock or 3.30 on during the week. I don't remember, but I just... Yeah. <laughs> just getting, you know, when I I came from such an outer fringe of rock music, but just to be included in MTV was always a big deal for us, you know, the the whole team. So, uh, and they they were a lot of fun back then. They were they it was it was pretty wide open. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think they ever really knew what to do with me. I seem to remember he decided that he wanted to do a segment where I was teaching him how to make good faces while playing guitar. You know? I do remember that. I do remember <laughs> that because there was the, I, the I remember, rock face. Yes. And, I, and, you know, I mean, he was a TV personality, so he was trained never to look bad or silly. So, you know, he didn't really go for it. But um, I just remember, again, I'd always shake my head going, you know, they're never going to ask me about the songs. And even though that's the only reason why I have a career is because I write songs, they always... What, they don't know what to do with me. So they always want to know about, you know, technical stuff. Like every time I go on there, they'd say, can you show us how to play like Eric Clapton and now play like uh, Jimi Hendrix now? And I'd be, you know, suffering through it going, okay, I'm not going to throw a fit on TV, but it's like, how come they just never ask about the songs? Cause that's what's being played on the radio, by the way, you know? <laughs> um, well, I think when you were on, it was right after the release of Satch Boogie. Mm, and okay. <laughs> and you know i remember you know that was the age of guitar back then yeah you know, obviously you had eddie and he had george lynch and then you had all these guys from shrapnel records you know tony <laughs> mcalpine and all those jason becker and all yeah. and then you had you and then and then i remember hearing uh always with you always with me always with you uh for like homecoming when they when they announced the 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 homecoming court, I'm like, oh, I know that it's Joe Satriani, you know. So it <laughs> well, was a- I tell you, you know, Chicago, the Loop was a huge supporter for me, and uh, it it was really something. There were a few DJs in the early days, uh, in in early '88 around the country, maybe two or three, you know, like Redbeard in Texas or something like that, and and New York and Boston, and and they they just championed it. You know, I was really shocked. The record company was shocked. And, um, but that's how the, the record broke because of the DJs playing the songs. And that's, that's what I never was able to get across to MTV because they wanted a video and the vi- already the beginning of people looking into the camera was starting to change the nature of music. And, and that's, that was the evil curse of MTV. It was such a wonderful thing for, to finally have popular music 24 hours a day on television. So that was the good thing. But the little evil thing lurking in the corner was that the, it was the camera didn't want to point to the drummer, the bass player, the keyboard player, the guitar player, whatever, 
They wanted somebody to look at them. The camera wants eye contact. And it was perfect for hip hop. So they kind of destroyed rock and allowed this other group to come in who were really dynamic and interesting and topical. And by the way, they looked in the camera all the time. <laughs> and, and, you know, for those of us in, in the middle of it, we could see it happening. We could see like, well, how come they always favor that band where they have the singer that's always singing songs where it never stops. And they're always looking in the camera. And, uh, and then people started writing songs like that. You know, it's really interesting. I could talk for hours about that effect that people never talk about. They just well, wasn't never... David Lee Roth really big at looking in the camera? He, he, smart man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very smart man. Very dynamic entertainer. Oh, personality and a face made for the camera. You know what I mean? He knew that right away and he loved it. He just stepped right in and said, this is my world. This is where I exist. And, you know, entertainers that didn't do that, that wasn't natural to do that as part of the style of music. You know, we suffered because we wouldn't get on television. You know, we'd, we'd spend uh, $200,000 like on a summer song video and we wouldn't get it played unless it was 4.15 in the morning because there was nobody looking in the camera. <laughs> I just remember that video for Jump and how every band, I think Eddie and David, always were looking in the camera on that video. Yeah. And as you're a young well, kid, a guy that was nine years old at the time, was like, this yeah. is awesome. Yeah. And uh, you know what I loved about that, though, is that when Eddie would look in the camera, you know, your just heart would melt because he was such a unique person. And you just crave for that contact, you know, even though, you know, he's just staring in a camera. <laughs> he's not looking at you, but you can't help it to think that that eye contact is so important. So um, it's, it's not like a it's not like I'm complaining or it's a bad thing. It's just an observation that was so important because it meant that for people like myself, we had to realize that we should stop spending money making videos uh, because they're never going to play them anyway, because we're not, we can't look in the camera. I can't play guitar, stare at the camera with my mouth closed, <laughs> not saying anything, you know what I mean? Uh, but Eddie and Dave could do that all day long because they had great songs. It was fun. They had the music to back it up. They were very engaging personalities, you know, made for the camera. And, and that's what it is. It's a visual, uh, it's a visual medium. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's what it's all about. So if you're not connecting with the audience, with your eyeballs, then it's, it's a tough sell. You mentioned the loop in Chicago who are big champions of yours, but there was also a station called WVVX 103.1 RPM uh -huh. that would come on. It was a Spanish speaking station during the day. <laughs> and then at seven o'clock, they would switch over to heavy metal and hard rock till like one in the morning. Oh. And Scott Loftus, who was a DJ who later went to the loop, would play stuff from Surfing with the Alien like all the time. And that was wow. like, like a big deal. Wow. Well, thank you. Wherever he is now. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was a great station because they would play Metallica. Then they play Satriani. Then like Van Halen, Nazareth and like Warrant. Like all in the same, it was fantastic. You know, it was like a little bit of everything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, I miss the, I miss the days uh, of the live DJ and, and, you know, people making up their own minds. And cause as you traveled the country back then, uh, you, you, you'd be excited to find out what this DJ was playing and what they were hip to that you didn't know about. And, 
Yeah, it was very, you know, before the national playlist took over. Yeah, it gave you a reason to to listen. Yeah. Because you never yeah. knew what they were going to play. They could break a band. They could introduce you to a band. Yeah. Um, that's something that I really think of impacts rock music today. Because it does. Yeah. There's really no area. There's no place to go for new rock music, right? I mean, you've got the streaming platforms. you got YouTube. But it takes a lot of work for a rock fan to kind of filter through things and find all that stuff where before it was either MTV or it was radio. Yeah. Very different way of working. Uh, we, as artists, we spend an enormous amount of money promoting ourselves when it used to be that that was part of the record company to take on the expense and they would have employees that would promote you every day. That was their job was to let the world know, but now we are the press agent, <laughs> so to speak, we have to do it all. We have to pay for it all. We have to create environments where we can promote ourselves on camera uh, in in any any way possible. Uh, very different. Um, and the we the great thing is that when I put out a record, like when Elephants of Mars gets released, it's released in India, in Quebec, in Florida, in you know wherever. From from China to uh, Lima, Peru, the record is available immediately, high resolution, everything. And that is amazing for a musician like myself who tours the world. Uh, and however, the bad side is, is that you this democracy means you've joined the multitudes of releases every day and the competition is really tough. And ultimately... Uh, the, the the pop artists rise to the top in terms of uh, uh, you know um, how the eyeballs that they get uh, on the internet and on television. So um, yeah, th- but I, it's never easy. I mean, it's it's never easy, and it's important, I think, for musicians to remember that you know you you chose the profession, and there's no re- <laughs> you know nobody said it was going to be great. You'll be famous and. It'll be easy. As a matter of fact, it's the longest of long shots ever, you know, and and uh, people remind us of that on the way. But we do it anyway because we can't help it. You know, we love it. You just mentioned that you have the ability to put something out globally at, you know, at one time. And the, the, the rock music scene or music scene in general is global now. It's not just, you know, um, you know, before, if you were a New York band, you wouldn't get much airplay in Chicago, if you were in yeah. LA, you know, LA was probably like the, the, the exception where if you broke in LA sooner or later, it would filter out throughout the country. You know, it was very regional back then. And it has yeah. a lot of positives too. And it has a lot of negatives, especially for new bands, because it's kind of hard to pick where your audience, you know, where to grow your audience. Cause you're, you're, you know, you're getting social media comments from all over the globe. You've got to respond. You got to really interact being who you are, you know, Joe Satriani, you've been in the business for a while. When you think of how you have to communicate with your audience now, it, obviously it's way different. What, you know, is that something that you, it's, it's kind of a tough question to ask. Obviously you probably enjoy interacting with your audience, but I guess the right way to ask, ask this is the time that it consumes, right? Cause you're yeah. a musician, you're an artist, you, you're not a social media guru, right? That's not what you are what, there for. How difficult is that for you to kind of get into that kind of headspace? 
Yeah, I you know, my natural state is to be uh writing and playing music uh on my own with uh my uh my bandmates, whoever it might be, you know, solo bandmates or chicken foot or whatever. And and on stage. I mean, those are those are the three things that I'm most comfortable doing. Um, and, uh, that's what I do most of the time, uh, you know, sitting down in a room that's, you know, quiet. So there's no ambient noise, dogs barking and construction noises, phones ringing, whatever, staring into a phone or laptop or whatever, doing interviews, uh, picking up my guitar, demonstrating. I do not enjoy that. You know, don't take it personally, but it's not my natural state. It's just something I know I have to do, but it's, you know. To me, it just takes away from what I really do, which is I write and perform music. And uh, but it's just necessary part. It's not, you know, I never complain about it because I realized I don't have a real job. You know, I I play guitar for a living. That's so I'm, you know, this incredibly. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to this gifted career that I get to do. So um, I'm not going to complain about it, but I will admit that yes, I do feel uncomfortable doing it. And you'd be surprised how many requests I get to do stuff that I find really offensive every single day. And people come to me and say, so-and-so's doing it. You should be doing it. So-and-so's getting this many views. You should be getting that many views, you know. And I just have to say, no, that's not me. I don't do that. Just, like, don't bother me. <laughs> Is there know? an example, like, so, what someone's asked you to do that... Like you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm just, I'm not oh, yeah. do that. I remember uh, getting on, in this particular campaign, uh, a certain magazine said, okay, this is what we'd like Joe to do. We'd like him to film himself and record himself playing uh, a solo over this song that we've written. And then we need him to film uh, uh, and record himself doing the demonstration of each little part, breaking it down. And uh, and then send us the high res and the low res and the and the separated music files, and then we'll put them on the cover. <laughs> that that was the deal. So I said, okay. So I have a new album coming out. They told me they like the record and they want to put me on the cover, but I have to do this something that they know I don't do, and it's not even my song. It's one of their songs, and the reason why they're doing that is they refuse to pay publishing by doing one of my songs, right? So they're good. So I just, you think about it and you go, okay, they want me to film myself playing one of their songs. What do I get out of this? <laughs> You'll put me on the cover. And then, you know, after a while you go, I don't need a cover of a magazine. I talk directly to my fans. I make music for my fans to listen to. That's, that's what I do. So, yeah. So, you know, you get a lot, of, I get a lot of those. And then eventually you, you know, sit down with your manager, say, you know, just don't bother me with this anymore. Just tell people, no, Joe doesn't do that. Okay. You want, you know, there's a, a million talented kids out there who play in front of Instagram every morning. Just use one of them. They're great. They will demonstrate, you know, all day long for you and they're good at it. But uh, I make albums and I go out on tour. That's, that's what I do. So they want to interview me about that. That's great. <laughs> amazing um the new album the elephants of mars out earlier this month amazing album follow-up to shape-shifting released in 2020 
when I last talked with you, you talked about how you try to find a different approach whenever you do an album. Mm, How did you find the approach for this one? Well, you know, it was uh, so difficult to just be alone at home as my record was being released and then to to realize that I wasn't going to be able to tour behind it. Uh, and you add to the fact just the, the human cost of the pandemic was just frightening enough for all of us. So it's a lot that came down. You know, I was in, I was in Los, I live in San Francisco. So I was down in, in Los Angeles at the beginning of 2020. I made a video with my son for the song 1980. I did a bunch of press. I jumped on stage with Steve I twice at the, at the NAMM show. And then drove home and then a couple of weeks later as i'm getting ready to go out on tour lockdowns you know start everybody knows what happened after that and i made the the tough decision to release the album anyway and i thought maybe there's a chance in six months this is all gone and we're back to normal uh but i thought either way you know especially now if everyone's locked down right they're going to need some music and that's my job i can't do vaccines i don't know i'm not a medical uh in the medical uh profession i'm not a nurse or a doctor so what what's my part well my part is to make music so i have this album so i took the hit i said let's just release it and maybe if we're lucky we wind up on tour in month nine months so i was thinking why don't i record two albums in the meantime uh, to focus on the new live band with, I got a guy from Australia who's a great singer, guitar player, keyboard player named Ray Thistlethwaite. And we could do one album where he sings all the songs. And then I got this new rhythm section, Kenny Aronoff and Brian Beller. And, and we could do uh, an album of instrumentals where they get to stretch out a lot. And we'll give the albums away when we finally hit the road in September or whatever, you know. And of course, you know, in a couple of months, that fizzled because we realized the pandemic was going to drag on. And everyone was just really freaking out. Everyone was out of work. You know, I mean, it's devastating to the, the people behind the curtain, you know, the crews who just work month to month and suddenly there's no work. So uh, as we started to think about what to do, I realized, well, I bet the next time I come out, next time I walk out of the house with my guitar, people are going to say, well, what else you got? You know, what's new? And I thought this is a moment where I really have to think, what is it that I want to do that I was never able to do before? Like, what excuse did I have for not doing the thing I always wanted to do or taking more time to do, you know, to make a record? And I thought, okay, I, I'm now going to set down a set of goals and the, and they weren't that different than what you would normally do, but they were specific this time and not to a style. So the first one was write better songs, uh, come up with better arrangements, play better guitar, <laughs> come up with better guitar sounds, you know, get a team together that agrees with all of those, you know. And I thought, OK, that's good because it's I'm, I didn't say make a reggae album, you know, make an EDM album. I didn't you know, confine myself to anything stylistically. I just actually turned the whole thing on me and said, what, what have you done? Do your, how about now is the time where you force yourself to do the best you've ever done. So that was, you know, the, the deal, that was what I, the task that I set upon myself called everyone and said, okay, 
first of all, sorry, the whole, the whole two album, I, you know, ideas dead, you know, uh, however, if you're into it, I'd like to invite you to do an instrumental album. And by the way, these are the ridiculous goals I've set for myself, but I want everybody to know we have no date on the calendar when we have to deliver this. We have no, you know, there's no clock on the wall. Everyone's going to have to record remotely. And by the way, I'm switching record companies. <laughs> so there was a lot of newness going on. However, we took it as a kind of a freedom and everyone really wanted to play. It was just, you know, I can't explain how much pent up energy musicians have when you rob them of the thing they do most of the time. It was just so much inside of us that we needed to get out. So uh, this is, this album was a, a great way for everybody, not only myself, just to pour all this energy into. And um, it was, I mean, you know, even on a, like a, you know, mundane level, just me being able to tell Brian Beller, like, I got these crazy ideas for this one song. You want to take three weeks to do the bass? Go ahead. Send me 20 versions of it. Go ahead. You know, it's not like, hey, you got to finish this by 1 p.m. And then we're doing two other songs, you know, <laughs> which is usually the case, you know, when you're in the studio. So uh, this wound up just being the opposite. Everybody could stretch out. It's great to, to get all these performances back from the other players that I'd never, you know, I never heard them do before. How was that for you in terms of creative, the, the creative process where you were relaxed, you had the time, you know, you just mentioned that, you know, usually you've got to have a deadline and you've got to have it out or finished by this such and such a date. And that kind of had that more, I don't want to say, well, I will say more of a casual approach, you know, to, to, to making the music more of a relaxed approach is probably a better yeah. term. You know, yeah. how did that affect your playing and just the direction you wanted to go with the album? Well, without a doubt, I learned that I played better when there wasn't anybody else in the room. <laughs> so this kind of thing, you don't want to admit to yourself, but uh, you know, when, if there's like three people in the room, I will play to them. I, and, and, you know, I admit it, I'm just that, that's the kind of performer I am. And if I see somebody smiling I'll go, I should, whatever I just did, I should play that again, you know? And if I see somebody uninterested, I think, oh, I must be boring them, like whatever I'm doing. So uh, just, and whether it's the engineer or the other bandmates making fun of me because I screwed up a part or something, it has an effect on your performance and uh, definitely how dangerous uh, your performance might be. Like, you, you know, you're not going to push yourself to the edge of your technical abilities. If there's an audience, you know, you always take a step back and so that you can present a, a fully realized performance. But when you're by yourself, you go, wow, I can just, you know, if I want to like weep when I'm playing this part, cause it's so sad, I can do that and not feel self-conscious. If I want to, you know, force myself to play a more difficult passage than I'm actually capable of doing, you know, for four hours, that would normally be a source for endless embarrassment on the tour bus, <laughs> you know, but by yourself, you go, this is fine. I'm just going to keep doing it because no one will ever hear me making the mistakes. And then after, you know, six or seven hours, you get it right. And you go, great. Never would have gone this far had there been someone in the room. And, uh, you know, I was open about this with the band telling them, look, this is what, how I'm accomplishing this. And they were hearing it and they've heard me play a million times. And they're like, wow, that's different. That's good. 
how'd you do that? And I said, oh, there's nobody around. I'm feeling relaxed. I'm not self-conscious. And uh, so, uh, and, and it doesn't relate directly to um, the obvious things of technicalities, you know, like big stretches, super fast, you know, whatever, stuff like that. It really just has to do with uh, the correct performance, I think. And, uh, and so that might be, like I said, emotionally revealing or it might be just physically difficult. And so those barriers were broken down by remote recording. We've all gone through, you know, a difficult two years, right? You know, we haven't had a normal, we've had very few more normal moments. Someone who writes lyrics has the ability to write about that personal experience, has that outlet. When you're creating tone when you're creating the, the the structure of the song how you want how you hear the song in your head how has the last two years affected that process for you or has it at all oh it's definitely uh some of the stuff is directly related to what we have shared uh you know as as uh people in, in our community uh and in the nation and around the world just the separation uh, fear um, and uh, anxiety surrounding uh, the pandemic and uh, songs like uh, Sahara and faceless with direct uh, reactions, uh, even though they weren't about, uh, you know, the pandemic, they were about how um, the, the space that the creative space that was sort of created in me by living through it, like everybody else. So, like Sahara, that was about a guy who was truly lost inside as well as in in, a, in the physical world. And it's kind of a, uh, there were, I suppose, um, uh, they were reflections on the fact that every time I would go out, it was pretty deserted. And the song Faceless was really started in me. It was, wasn't about the pandemic or wearing masks. But it was it was an idea that uh, was created because of that, because as I walked around town every day, I noticed that not only do you don't see strangers faces, but you don't even see your friends faces anymore. And people started to stop saying hello, you know, and everyone was just really trying to stay away from each other. And I, st I started to think about that. And, and so um, I create these make-believe worlds sometimes and, and little movies in my head based on these feelings I'm getting from the real world. And I, I clear out all the music that doesn't have anything to do with creating that feeling, putting a sound to that feeling I'm having. So with a song like Faceless, really what it, it was about was people not being able to see you for who you really are and how much that would hurt whether that was just person to person or within a family or a group of friends community country world whatever um and i thought well i'll write a that's what this song is really about even though it it came to my mind i'm sure because of just being outside and and everybody being covered up you know um so but on the other hand i think uh, there's a, um, the opposite reaction comes where you just, you know, you want to party, you want to feel good. 
And I didn't stop myself from writing songs that were about the lightest subjects ever. So a song like Bluefoot Groovy. I love. So light, you know, it's just about a, a, a person feeling so good and they just want to sell themselves to a particular potential partner, you know, and, and just like exuding, like, I feel great. Like, come on, let's, let's get together. And, and, uh, so, uh, I thought, yeah, it's all equal, you know, just cause it's happy and light doesn't mean it's any, it weighs less than the song that's about some tragedy. You know, it's all, it's all music. And, you know, because it's instrumental, I realized that once people hear it, they're going to make up their own story. I have no control over that. What I got from the album was, you know, obviously instrumental is more reliant on mood and feeling, right? You know, where lyrics, they kind of lay out what they're writing about. You kind of, you can connect with it that way. You know, when I think back of the last two years and the roller coaster of life, the, and and the, there were, there are periods of excitement. You, you learn to appreciate the small stuff. You dreaded, you know, the ongoing restrictions and all that stuff, but you knew, you knew you had to do it. What I found was this album really captured that emotion because it was like a journey from the moment Sahara started playing, you know, into, you know, songs like, like pumping was, is one of my favorites too, as well. It can't help, but you'll feel good. It's like one of those moments in the last two years where you felt good for a, a little bit of time. You got sailing the seas of, is it Ganymede? I think it's called, yeah, which is just an absolute monster track, but it just was able to capture that mood of the last two years in, in the songs that you created. And I thought that was very interesting. Well, I, I'm very happy to hear you say that. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to tap into all those things. They, all the songs have very interesting uh, stories. They're also different. And uh, some of them took like musical journeys that, didn't make any sense you know they it was just so backwards you know when you mentioned the sailing the seas of ganymede i had originally uh had written that song uh in its first form as a reaction to being on the jimmy fallon show a few times and having to rehearse in the smallest of all rooms that's like an insult to the to the roots (laughs) that jimmy makes them rehearse in this teeny little room that there's barely enough room for the epic quest love to, to try to put a show together. But when you go to do the show, that's what you have to do. You squeeze into this little room and you're like this for like 30 (laughs) minutes going over what's going to happen. And the last time uh, I did the show, I was flying back and I was thinking, you know, where would I see somebody as epic as quest love? Like, where should he be? Not in that little room. (laughs) And I, I had this idea. He should be on his own gigantic sailing ship you know, commanding 200 foot swells just on some big adventure with just the the biggest space around him ever, you know? And, um, and that just, I just went with that. And then, you know, it became the seas of Ganymede, which is a a moon, a moon of Jupiter where the scientists think there's uh, underground oceans, you know? And uh, I just thought, well, that's really fantastical, you know? And uh, so, but they, it gives you kind of uh, artistic license, you know, when you think, well, if this song is about that, then yeah, when that chorus comes, da, 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 you know, you, you, you write music that you really think is going to go with him standing at the top of his big ship <laughs> going up and down these gigantic waves. It just makes sense, you know. Uh, but the fact that it's on Ganymede means that you can go crazy with the other parts of the song. So, 
you can imagine I, I'm telling this to the other musicians and they're like, what, you know, Joe, you're crazy. And, and so I send the song off at one point to Ray, who's like traveling around with his band, Thirsty Merc in Australia. And I may have forgotten to tell him where to put his solo. I don't remember, but he sent back the song with this amazing solo in the wrong place. And uh, me and, and Eric Kodjia, my producer, we listened to it and we thought, well, he put the solo in the wrong place, but now that's the right place. <laughs> so we left it. I don't know why he put the solo in the in the chorus, but it was just one of those things where we thought, this is so interesting. Uh, let me have the song back. I'll rewrite the second half of the song so that what Ray did makes sense. And so, you know, that would never happen if you were all shoved into a room for a few hours, you know, frantically trying to stay under budget and in time with your record. Uh, These are the things that uh, wound up being little stories that piled up for every song. There was always something funny that would happen that somebody would do that would wind up being uh, an epic contribution in the end, you know? When you write an album like this and, and you're putting together the tracks and being creative, is each song a result of its individual inspiration or do you find yourself once you start creating and going on a journey for an album, you get like this bubble of inspiration where each song kind of relates to itself or is it just completely random? Well, it starts off. Well, I would have to say that some albums are very well conceived from top to bottom. And, uh, and, but the, the concepts could be as, tight as you know live in the studio or like with the extremist album i was just like classic rock you know i just wanted to make it sound like an era that i missed because i was too young and 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 that's that's i just you know i mean that record cost so much money we recorded it like three times and it just took forever but i wouldn't let go of this idea that the, the album had to sound like it came from the classic rock period and eventually getting Andy Johns in to do the final productions was the key element, you know? And, uh, and so, but then other albums, uh, are a little bit more open. Um, I think, um, when I was thinking about, uh, um, uh, the black swans album, I remember thinking that, uh, it was a very light concept, which is, you know, let some songs just like breathe like let let long things happen because i started to notice there was a lot of music out there where people hadn't edited the song down just so that it would work on radio and tv or uh, on on youtube you know to go with some visualizer thing and uh, i thought that could be fun to do if the rest of the band is into it if i write these passages where we just groove for 64 bars and there's no solo you know which is yeah, you know, guitar magazines are like, where's the solo, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, and the, and the radio guys are like, well, this thing is too long. It's like six minutes, you know, we need three minutes and 20 seconds, no longer, you know? Um, so sometimes they're like that, but in this particular album, as I said before, I had my rules, but I had no stylistic rules and we, we were, uh, you know, at one point we had too many songs and you know, I'd written 25, 30 songs and I did have to go, you know, left pile, right pile, you know, <laughs> like that's working. That's not, you know, Sahara, I had written lyrics for, it was actually 
going to be one of the songs for the uh, the vocal record that we spoke about earlier. And uh, but um, I think the lyrics maybe they sucked, and and maybe that's why Ray never got around to doing them. I'm not sure, but um, uh, I was happy that that you know that went back and forth the yes pile, no pile back and forth until uh, my producer was like, that song is so great. You have to rewrite it for, you know, for the guitar. You just, you have to do it. It's just so we, you know, it's so beautiful. And so with that encouragement, the style of that song wound up back in the album. And so slowly, I think in the last six months of making the record, I started to realize, okay, now it's down to 20 songs. I'm beginning to see, that this record is going to be stylistically out of control. And I was just going to have to accept it, that there were going to be songs that left and right. There was just no way to contain it. So I accepted that as maybe it's, I don't know if it's the absence <laughs> of a direction or if it's just a very grand direction to have this ultimate eclectic record. But I embraced it because it was so much fun. Every time I'd work on a song, it was like a brand new record to me. And it was an opportunity to, to figure out a way to play better in a different way. Uh, so yeah, that, you know, when we finally, I'd say the last two weeks of making the record, Eric and I finally were like, it's got to be 14 songs. We're not, you know, nobody wanted to remove anything to make it more sane. You know, <laughs> the same thing would be nine to 10 songs. Don't give the record company anymore hold back, you know, and, uh, and don't confuse your audience with all these styles. And, but we, you know, we're, we love albums. We love jer musical journeys. And we said, you know what, you know, let's just, let's just make this the way we want it. And, and uh, luckily uh, Max uh, at uh, ear music loved the album. And he said, no, whatever you guys think is the way to do it. We'll, we'll do it. So we got we got nothing but encouragement from ear music to make this record the way it came out when you're going through that list left right list of songs and <laughs> songs don't make the album is it because they don't fit for what you're trying to do i mean obviously this was more of this album had more of a broad scope to it than than some of yeah. the other stuff that you had or is it just maybe not ready it needs a few more you know minutes in the oven what what's <laughs> the reasons for not you know for you choosing what songs make the album well, sometimes it's uh, because it's, you know, uh, there's a something's not finished, let's say, you know, it needs another part or maybe, you know, the chorus isn't strong enough or you know, something like that. That's typical songwriter things where you're still scratching your head over something. And so and usually it's because you were by the end of the song, you were expecting to feel a certain way and you don't and you go, OK, what did I screw up? Why don't. You know, why am I not satisfied? And so it would, it's normal everyday uh, songwriting craft to go back and say, is that too short or too long? Or does this part really need to be here? And, you know, you edit uh, as you're working on your final mixes very often. Like with the song 1980 was a lot longer, I remember. And we were sitting down listening to it, me and Jim Scott. And, you know, we you could see we were both feeling like, and we put our finger up like that's where we go to from there and we started chopping up the song and all of a sudden it was like why you know why didn't we record it like this like this is so obvious 
that this is the arrangement. And it was really about taking two measures out in two different places. That's all. It was that subtle, but it just made the song very exciting. Uh, and so there's a lot of that that goes on. There's also some uh, tension that happens when you have a song and there's somebody in the band that's just like, eh, you know, <laughs> I hate that song. <laughs> that happens all the time. I mean, usually like with a, with chicken foot, it was always very fast because we never had enough time to record anything. And so, you know, a song would come up and, you know, someone would say, Oh, I hate that fucking song, you know? And that would be the end of that. <laughs> we just wouldn't record anything unless everyone wanted to do it. But sometimes it, it goes back and forth. Like someone tries to sell the, the song to the rest of the band. Like, no, you don't understand. It's going to be great if you could just, you know, and, and then you realize like, wow, if this song takes selling, there must be something wrong with it. <laughs> yeah, so, true. Uh, so eventually it's just obvious it's either working or it's not. And it, but everybody arrives at the right conclusion at a different time. And so you have to give each other space to come to that realization that perhaps, uh, you know, they were late in realizing that there was an issue with the song. What's next? Is there a tour planned? Are you going to be hitting the road? And it's been a while since you've done, you know, a a string of shows. So yeah, that ironed out. Well, we, uh, you know, we had to cancel the European tour yet again. You know, we had the 20 European tour, the 21, and then the 22 uh, had to get canceled as well. Um, uh, It's very difficult for us because we do five to six shows a week. We travel in trucks and tour buses. And so uh, we haven't figured out, um, you know, at least in in terms of Europe, how to get the protocol straight from country to country, because we're in like, 17 countries and some of them are, are are now close to the war zone. So um, it was just, we couldn't, we realized that it would be an economic disaster for the tour. If we got stopped in any one of those countries for a week, there's just no way to, you can't go back. You can't pause, let alone somebody getting ill. No one wants to get ill. And, and uh, so uh, I took, on the responsibility of just saying, look, if I can't guarantee everyone's going to be safe the way we have to do it, then, you know, and it's a nine week tour. So it's, it's, it's different. It's not like you're in the Rolling Stones, you do three weeks, private planes, big places outdoors, you know, no, we're talking about theaters, you know, and, and communal living. It's like a circus and and you travel on a little tube every night. So there's just no way to keep everybody safe unless you know that everyone's part of the program. And that was the problem is that each city you go to, you have no idea if they're going to follow protocol in Bucharest and, you know, wherever else that we play. And so, um, however, uh, our European partners have been so nice and <laughs> they are honoring all the tickets in 2023 that were sold in 2019, 20, 21, and 22. We were playing in 99% of the same venues on the same dates, just a different year. So we'll go back to Europe next spring for sure. Uh, this year, uh, Canada, North America, we will start at the end of September and uh, we'll do a good eight, nine weeks, I think. Uh, and yeah, my fingers are crossed that everything goes great for that because we're dying to get on stage and play music for our fans i'm sure i know i read uh jason newstead made some news last week uh with 
an interview where he stated that he was contacted by Alex Van Halen as well uh, as the name Joe Satriani was mentioned in the interview. Uh, any truth to that? Did that really happen? What was that about? Yeah, I, I've been talking to Alex uh, and Dave for about a year, and uh, it's, you know, a wonderful and terrifying prospect to represent Eddie in a, uh, you know, a, a Van Halen tribute tour. Uh, but um, I, I really felt that, um, you know, Alex is an amazing human being as well as a fantastic musician, and he he would only do it if it was going to be done right, you know, and, um, but, you know, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. It's very difficult, uh, to put something like that together. We had all agreed that we would just keep it under wraps until we thought that it could really happen. And so, yeah, I was kind of surprised that Jason went public with it because that wasn't the deal. <laughs> so, uh, so that, yeah, caused a bit of a, yeah, that ruffled some feathers for sure. So, um, so I, yeah, I don't know. All I know is Eddie Van Halen was the greatest and I, I loved his playing and, uh, I'd be honored if I could do some of it or all of it. And there's so many other guitar players out there who would be great at it as well. Um, uh, but, um, they called me, so, um, I didn't shy away from it. Is it still on the table or is it, is it, uh, unlikely to happen? I really don't know. I, I gotta say, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a, uh, it's a terrifying dream to tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, just for me personally, I can only tell you from my side of it that there's so much of uh, Eddie's stuff. I really enjoy playing. And then there's a, there are a couple of songs that totally freak me out because it's just not in my fingers to play exactly like him, you know, and, and I wouldn't want to disappoint, uh, the audiences out there who are expecting a clone. Uh, uh, but I don't think that's what uh, Dave and Alex have in mind. What, I think they, they have the right attitude that it should be a celebration of, uh, of the band as well as Eddie. It's not a, you know, they're, they're not trying to replace him. You know what I mean? There's no replacing him. No, absolutely. I, yeah. I um, yeah. But uh, I've always had fun playing the music and, um, you know, I, I wish I had known Eddie, you know, I really didn't. I only met him once back in 92, just for a few moments. He dropped by the studio to, uh, when I was making the extremist album. Um, so my connection, you know, with him was extremely limited. You know, I was just a fan. Well, wasn't 1980 more or less a tribute to Eddie uh, from Shapeshifting? Yes, it was. It was. Yeah. I, I, you know, was in my studio and I was actually to reflecting on the uh, release of all the, the remastered tracks from my eighties band called the squares, which was more of a power pop band. But the, the backstory behind that was that I was really into Van Halen, the band, the other band members weren't. And I really tried to interject a lot of Eddie's attitude into the band, uh, which really was working towards a more new wave kind of an attitude and it was a bit of an artistic conflict for me because I was just really a rock kid that wanted to, you know, play like Eddie, you know. And uh, so when I was sitting in the studio, the album came out and I was thinking, what, you know, what was left undone? What was it? And it was that I never really was able to do what he was doing at that time. And that's what I really wanted to do. 
and uh, laying on the ground <laughs> as I was coming to that a realization was uh, an Eddie Van Halen MXR phaser pedal, you know, famous that he made famous. Um, and I thought, damn. And I just plugged that thing in and I just wrote that song as a, as a sort of a tribute uh, to him and, and how he had inspired me at that time. And, uh, and I didn't think it was going to be on the album. It was just something I was doing for myself. Uh, but it wound up, you know, we were talking about the, the yes, the left pile and the right pile, the songs to do songs, not to do <laughs> it just kept you know, getting included on the songs to do. And I just thought it's kind of weird, like to do a song tribute to Eddie. Cause he's, you know, he's alive and kicking, making records and touring and everything. And I didn't really think about, you know, anything that might happen. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, so I was pretty upfront with it. Once it wound up on the record, I said, yeah, that's, that's kind of like me paying tribute to Eddie, even though when you listen to it, it's got nothing about his style really. It's just really a fan's reaction, you know. It's kind of the energy, right? It is really. And then the energy I was feeling, and there was a lot of that resurgence of rock and roll guitar, which was kind of leaving in a way, or it was kind of co-opted by New Wave and it was sounding more like garage rock. But I was reflect reflecting more of the time when Eddie and I would have been learning guitar, which would have been the early seventies. Um, and that that style of rock guitar. And um yeah, so it was, I was celebrating a lot in that one song. What were those two songs or those songs that scare you when you've got to try to play uh, that you mentioned that, that Eddie Van Halen plays? Um, I'm the one. Uh, you know that song? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, Eddie, ha, Eddie has a thing that he could play. He could swing super fast, super accurate forever with his right hand. Then, 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 it's like freaky, you know, and, um, you know, it's like you hear it and you go, oh, yeah, I can do that. And you do that. And then after about 15 seconds, you like, ow, like, <laughs> and then you go, he's doing this for like five minutes straight. <laughs> it was like the whole thing. He and, and he and Alex, you know, they were just like, wow. I mean, the thing that they, this, that they have you know, when they come together is, it's just unbeatable. And that's the rhythm thing, you know, it's really hard. I mean, the, the outrageous things people think about, those are actually the easy things. But when you think about how we played with Alex within the song and created a whole part, that's when you, as a guitar player, you go, whoa, like that's something unique and very special. You know, it's not the feedback at the, you know, uh, at the beginning of this song, or it's not the two hand tapping, which was fantastic and, and unique, but you can learn that one. Uh, but yeah, some of the, like that. Yeah. Some of the odd things he would do because I don't know. I think he, I think he was always thinking really big. That's my impression. When I started to really learn the catalog, I thought, wow, these songs were, were written to be played in stadiums and arenas. I mean, every part seems to make sense if you're in front of thousands of people, not so much if you're in front of 200 in the club, you know what I mean? And, and you could say it about Dave, Dave, you know, he was made to entertain millions, you know, uh, it's sort of like Freddie Mercury, you know, at live aid, that's where his natural habitat, not in the 200 seat club, you know, uh, he's too big for that, you know? Um, and so that's the thing too, that you, 
it's a very it's a subtle thing about performance and writing but when you start to learn 30 or 40 you know van halen songs you start to see these things you start to see a little bit behind the curtain and you go like wow this he did this on purpose and and they're they're quite unique joe it's been a blast i appreciate the time i appreciate the discussion i love the album Thank you. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, like I said, man, from the minute I heard Sahara into the title track, it, it's just an incredible journey. I like the cover too, with like the guitars and the and the necks playing off the elephants. So that's, that was great. A nice that, touch. that's the genius of Todd Galapo, <laughs> the art director. He's fantastic. He, just uh, amazing work. He always does. The album is The Elephants of Mars. The guest is Joe Satriani. I'm Jay Scott. Take care of each other. We'll talk soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 